Chapter 1 of The Home and the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Home and the World by Rabindranath Tagore. Translated by Surendranath Tagore. Chapter 1 Bimala's Story. Part 1 Mother. Today there comes back to mind the vermilion mark, the mark of Hindu wifehood and the symbol of all the devotion that it implies at the parting of your hair. The sari, the dress of the Hindu woman, which you used to wear with its wide red border, and those wonderful eyes of yours full of depth and peace. They came at the start of my life's journey, like the first streak of dawn, giving me golden provision to carry me on my way. The sky which gives light is blue, and my mother's face was dark, but she had the radiance of holiness, and her beauty would put to shame all the vanity of the beautiful. Everyone says that I resemble my mother. In my childhood I used to resent this. It made me angry with my mirror. I thought that it was God's unfairness which was wrapped around my limbs that my dark features were not my due, but had come to me by some misunderstanding. All that remained for me to ask of my God in reparation was that I might grow up to be a model of what woman should be, as one reads it in some epic poem. When the proposal came for my marriage, an astrologer was sent, who consulted my palm and said, This girl has good signs. She will become an ideal wife. And all the women who heard it said, No wonder, for she resembles her mother. I was married into a Raja's house. When I was a child, I was quite familiar with the description of the prince of the fairy story. But my husband's face was not of a kind that one's imagination would place in a fairy land. It was dark, even as mine was. The feeling of shrinking which I had about my own lack of physical beauty was lifted a little. At the same time, a touch of regret was left lingering in my heart. But when the physical appearance evades the scrutiny of our senses and enters the sanctuary of our hearts, then it can forget itself. I know from my childhood's experience how devotion is beauty itself in its inner aspect. When my mother arranged the different fruits, carefully peeled by her own loving hands on the white stone plate and gently waved her fan to drive away the flies while my father sat down to his meals, her service would lose itself in a beauty which passed beyond outward forms. Even in my infancy, I could feel its power. It transcended all debates or doubts or calculations. It was pure music. I distinctly remember after my marriage, when early in the morning I would cautiously and silently get up and take the dust of my husband's feet, a formal offering of reverence, without waking him, how at such moments I could feel the vermilion mark upon my forehead shining out like the morning star. One day he happened to awake and smiled as he asked me, What is that, Bimala? What are you doing? I can never forget the shame of being detected by him. 
he might possibly have thought that I was trying to earn merit secretly. But no, no, that has nothing to do with merit. It was my woman's heart, which must worship in order to love. My father-in-law's house was old in dignity from the days of the Bachas. Some of its manners were of the Mughals and Patans, some of its customs of Manu and Parashar. But my husband was absolutely modern. He was the first of the house to go through a college course and take his M.A. degree. His elder brother had died young of drink and had left no children. My husband did not drink and was not given to dissipation. So far into the family was this abstinence that to many it hardly seemed decent. Purity, they imagined, was only becoming in those on whom fortune had not smiled. It is the moon which has room for stains, not the stars. My husband's parents had died long ago, and his old grandmother was mistress of the house. My husband was the apple of her eye, the jewel on her bosom, and so he never met with much difficulty in overstepping any of the ancient usages. When he brought in Miss Gilby to teach me and be my companion, he stuck to his resolve in spite of the poison secreted by all the wagging tongues at home and outside. My husband had then just got through his B.A. examination and was reading for his M.A. degree, so he had to stay in Calcutta to attend college. He used to write to me almost every day, a few lines only, and simple words, but his bold round handwriting would look up into my face oh so tenderly. I kept his letters in a sandalwood box and covered them every day with the flowers I gathered in the garden. At that time, the prince of the fairy tale had faded, like the moon in the morning light. I had the prince of my real world enthroned in my heart. I was his queen. I had my seat by his side. But my real joy was that my true place was at his feet. Since then, I have been educated and introduced to the modern age in its own language. And therefore, these words that I write seem to blush with shame in their prose setting. Except for my acquaintance with this modern standard of life, I should know quite naturally that just as my being born a woman was not in my own hands, so the elements of devotion in woman's love is not like a hackneyed passage quoted from a romantic poem to be piously written down in round hand in a schoolgirl's copybook. But my husband would not give me any opportunity for worship. That was his greatness. They are cowards who claim absolute devotion from their wives as their right. That is a humiliation for both. His love for me seemed to overflow my limits by its flood of wealth and service. But my necessity was more for giving than for receiving. For love is a vagabond who can make his flowers bloom in the wayside dust better than in the crystal jars kept in the drawing room. My husband could not break completely with the old-time traditions which prevailed in our family. It was difficult, therefore, for us to meet at any hour of the day we pleased. I knew exactly the time that he could come to me, and therefore our meeting had all the care of loving preparation. It was like the rhyming of a poem. It had to come through the path of the meter. 
After finishing the day's work and taking my afternoon bath, I would do up my hair and renew my vermilion mark and put on my sari, carefully crinkled, and then, bringing back my body and mind from all distractions of household duties, I would dedicate it at this special hour with special ceremonies to one individual. That time each day with him was short, but it was infinite. My husband used to say that man and wife are equal in love because of their equal claim on each other. I never argued the point with him, but my heart said that devotion never stands in the way of true equality. It only raises the level of the ground of meeting. Therefore the joy of the higher equality remains permanent. It never slides down to the vulgar level of triviality. My beloved, it was worthy of you that you never expected worship from me. But if you had accepted it, you would have done me a real service. You showed your love by decorating me, by educating me, by giving me what I asked for and what I did not. I have seen what depth of love there was in your eyes when you gazed at me. I have known the secret sigh of pain you suppressed in your love for me. You love my body as if it were a flower of paradise. You love my whole nature as if it had been given you by some rare providence. Such lavish devotion made me proud to think that the wealth was all my own which drove you to my gate. But vanity such as this only checks the flow of free surrender in a woman's love. When I sit on the queen's throne and claim homage, then the claim only goes on magnifying itself. It is never satisfied. Can there be any real happiness for a woman in merely feeling that she has power over a man? To surrender one's pride in devotion is women's only salvation. It comes back to me today how in the days of our happiness the fires of envy sprung up all around us. That was only natural, for had I not stepped into my good fortune by a mere chance and without deserving it? But providence does not allow a run of luck to last forever unless its debt of honor be fully paid day by day through many a long day and thus made secure. God may grant us gifts, but the merit of being able to take and hold them must be our own. Alas for the boons that slipped through unworthy hands. My husband's grandmother and mother were both renowned for their beauty, and my widowed sister-in-law was also of a beauty rarely to be seen. When, in turn, fate left them desolate, the grandmother vowed she would not insist on having beauty for her remaining grandson when he married. Only the auspicious marks with which I was endowed gained me an entry into this family. Otherwise, I had no claim to be here. In this house of luxury, but few of its ladies had received their meed of respect. They had, however, got used to the ways of the family and managed to keep their heads above water, buoyed up by their dignity as ranis of an ancient house, in spite of their daily tears being drowned in the foam of wine and by the tinkle of the dancing girl's anklets. Was the credit due to me that my husband did not touch liquor, nor squander his manhood in the markets of women's flesh? What charm did I know 
to soothe the wild and wandering mind of men. It was my good luck, nothing else, for fate proved utterly callous to my sister-in-law. Her festivity died out, while yet the evening was early, leaving the light of her beauty shining in vain over empty halls, burning and burning, with no accompanying music. His sister-in-law affected a contempt for my husband's modern notions. How absurd to keep the family ship laden with all the weight of its time-honored glory sailing under the colors of his slip of a girl-wife alone. Often have I felt the lash of scorn, a thief who had stolen a husband's love, a sham hidden in the shamelessness of her new-fangled finery, the many-colored garments of modern fashion with which my husband loved to adorn me roused jealous wrath. Is not she ashamed to make a show window of herself, and with her looks too? My husband was aware of all this, but his gentleness knew no bounds. He used to implore me to forgive her. I remember I once told him, women's minds are so petty, so crooked. Like the feet of Chinese women, he replied. Has not the pressure of society crammed them into pettiness and crookedness? They are but pawns of the fate which gambles with them. What responsibility have they of their own? My sister-in-law never failed to get from my husband whatever she wanted. He did not stop to consider whether her requests were right or reasonable. But what exasperated me most was that she was not grateful for this. I had promised my husband that I would not talk back at her but this set me raging all the more inwardly. I used to feel that goodness has a limit, which, if passed, somehow seems to make men cowardly. Shall I tell the whole truth? I have often wished that my husband had the manliness to be a little less good. My sister-in-law, the Badarani, the senior Rani, was still young and had no pretensions to saintliness. Rather, her talk and jest and laugh inclined to be forward. The young maids with whom she surrounded herself were also impudent to a degree. But there was none to gainsay her, for was not this the custom of the house? It seemed to me that my good fortune in having a stainless husband was a special eyesore to her. He, however, felt more the sorrow of her lot than the defects of her character. Part 2. My husband was very eager to take me out of Parda. Parda, which means screen, is the seclusion of the Zanana and all the customs peculiar to it. One day I said to him, What do I want with the outside world? The outside world may want you, he replied. If the outside world has caught on so long without me, it may go on for some time longer. It need not pine to death for want of me. Let it perish for all I care. That is not troubling me. I am thinking about myself. Oh, indeed. Tell me what about yourself. My husband was silent with a smile. I knew his way and protested at once. No, no, you're not going to run away from me like that. I want to have this out with you. Can one ever finish a subject with words? Do stop speaking in riddles. Tell me. 
What I want is that I should have you and you should have me more fully in the outside world. That is where we are still in debt to each other. Is anything wanting then in the love we have here at home? Here you are wrapped up in me. You know neither what you have nor what you want. I cannot bear to hear you talk like this. I would have you come into the heart of the outer world and meet reality, merely going on with your household duties, living all your life in the world of household conventions and the drudgery of household tasks. You were not made for that. If we meet and recognize each other in the real world, then only will our love be true. If there be any drawback here to our full recognition of each other, then I have nothing to say. But as for myself, I feel no want. Well, even if the drawback is only on my side, why shouldn't you help to remove it? Such discussions repeatedly occurred. One day he said, The greedy man who is fond of his fish stew has no compunction in cutting up the fish according to his need. But the man who loves the fish wants to enjoy it in the water. And if that is impossible, he waits on the bank. And even if he comes back home without a sight of it, he has the consolation of knowing that the fish is all right. Perfect gain is the best of all. But if that is impossible, then the next best gain is perfect losing. I never liked the way my husband had of talking on this subject. But that is not the reason why I refuse to leave the Zenana. His grandmother was still alive. My husband had filled more than 120% of the house with the 20th century against her taste, but she had borne it uncomplainingly. She would have borne it likewise if the daughter-in-law of the Raja's house had left its seclusion. She was even prepared for this happening, but I did not consider it important enough to give her the pain of it. I have read in books that we are called caged birds. I cannot speak for others, but I had so much in this cage of mine that there was no room for it in the universe. At least, that is what I then felt. The grandmother in her old age was very fond of me. At the bottom of her fondness was the thought that with the conspiracy of favorable stars which attended me, I had been able to attract my husband's love. Were not men naturally inclined to plunge downwards? None of the others, for all their beauty, had been able to prevent their husbands going headlong into the burning depths which consumed and destroyed them. She believed that I had been the means of extinguishing this fire, so deadly to the men of the family. So she kept me in the shelter of her bosom, and tremble if I was in the least bit unwell. His grandmother did not like the dresses and ornaments my husband brought from European shops to deck me with. But she reflected, men will have some absurd hobby or other, which is sure to be expensive. It is no use trying to check their extravagance. One is glad enough if they stop short of ruin. If my Nikhil had not been busy dressing up his wife, there is no knowing whom else he might have spent his money on. So whenever any new dress of mine arrived, she used to send for my husband and make merry over it. 
Thus it came about that it was her taste which changed. The influence of the modern age fell so strongly upon her that her evenings refused to pass if I did not tell her stories out of English books. After his grandmother's death, my husband wanted me to go and live with him in Calcutta. But I could not bring myself to do that. Was not this our house, which she had kept under her sheltering through all her trials and troubles? Would not a curse come upon me if I deserted it and went off to town? This was the thought that kept me back, as her empty seat reproachfully looked up at me. That noble lady had come into the house at the age of eight and had died in her seventy-ninth year. She had not spent a happy life. Fate had hurled shaft after shaft at her breast, only to draw out more and more the imperishable spirit within. This great house was hallowed with her tears. What should I do in the dust of Calcutta, away from it? My husband's idea was that this would be a good opportunity for leaving to my sister-in-law the consolation of ruling over the household, giving our life at the same time more room to branch out in Calcutta. That is just where my difficulty came in. She had worried my life out. She ill-brooked my husband's happiness, and for this she was to be rewarded. And what of the day when we should have to come back here? Should I then get back my seat at the head? What do you want with that seat, my husband would say? Are there not more precious things in life? Men never understand these things. They have their nests in the outside world. They little know the whole of what the household stands for. In these matters, they ought to follow womanly guidance. Such were my thoughts at that time. I felt the real point was that one ought to stand up for one's right. To go away and leave everything in the hands of the enemy would be nothing short of owning defeat. But why did not my husband compel me to go with him to Calcutta? I know the reason. He did not use his power just because he had it. Part 3 If one had to fill in little by little the gap between day and night, it would take an eternity to do it. But the sun rises and the darkness is dispelled. A moment is sufficient to overcome an infinite distance. One day there came the new era of Swadeshi, the nationalist movement in Bengal, but as to how it happened, we had no distinct vision. There was no gradual slope connecting the past with the present. For that reason, I imagine, the new epoch came in like a flood, breaking down the dikes and sweeping all our prudence and fear about it. We had no time even to think about or understand what had happened or what was about to happen. My sight and my mind, my hopes and my desires became red with the passion of this new age. Though up to this time, the walls of the home, which was the ultimate world to my mind, remained unbroken, yet I stood looking over into the distance and I heard a voice from the far horizon whose meaning was not perfectly clear to me, but whose call went straight to my heart. From the time my husband had been a college student, he had been trying to get the things required by our people 
produced in our own country. There are plenty of date trees in our district. He tried to invent an apparatus for extracting the juice and boiling it into sugar and treacle. I heard that it was a great success, only it extracted more money than juice. After a while, he came to the conclusion that our attempts at reviving our industries were not succeeding for want of a bank of our own. He was, at that time, trying to teach me political economy. This alone would not have done much harm, but he also took it into his head to teach his countrymen ideas of thrift so as to pave the way for a bank, and then he actually started a small bank. Its high rate of interest, which made the villagers flock so enthusiastically to put in their money, ended by swamping the bank altogether. The old officers of the estate felt troubled and frightened. There was jubilation in the enemy's camp. Of all the family, only my husband's grandmother remained unmoved. She would scold me, saying, Why are you all plaguing him so? Is it the fate of the estate that is worrying you? How many times have I seen this estate in the hands of the court receiver? Are men like women? Men are born spendthrifts and only know how to waste. Look here, child. Count yourself fortunate that your husband is not wasting himself as well. My husband's list of charities was a long one. He would assist to the bitter end of utter failure anyone who wanted to invent a new loom or rice husking machine. But what annoyed me most was the way that Sandeep Babu used to fleece him on the pretext of Swadeshi work. Whenever he wanted to start a newspaper or travel about preaching the cause or take a change of air by the advice of his doctor, my husband would unquestioningly supply him with the money. This was over and above the regular living allowance which Sandeep Babu also received from him. The strangest part of it was that my husband and Sandeep Babu did not agree in their opinions. As soon as the Sadeshi storm reached my blood, I said to my husband, I must burn all my foreign clothes. Why burn them, said he. You need not wear them as long as you please. As long as I please? Not in this life. Very well, do not wear them for the rest of your life then. But why this bonfire business? Would you thwart me in my resolve? What I want to say is this. Why not try to build up something? You should not waste even a tenth part of your energies in this destructive excitement. Such excitement will give us the energy to build. That is as much as to say that you cannot light the house unless you set fire to it. Then there came another trouble. When Miss Kilby first came to our house, there was a great flutter, which afterwards calmed down when they got used to her. Now the whole thing was stirred up afresh. I had never bothered myself before as to whether Miss Kilby was European or Indian, but I began to do so now. I said to my husband, we must get rid of Miss Gilby. He kept silent. I talked to him wildly, and he went away sad at heart. After a fit of weeping, I felt in a more reasonable mood when we met at night. I cannot, my husband said, 
look upon Miss Gilby through a mist of abstraction just because she's English. Cannot you get over the barrier of her name after such a long acquaintance? Cannot you realize that she loves you? I felt a little ashamed and replied with some sharpness. Let her remain. I'm not over anxious to send her away. And Miss Gilby remained. But one day I was told that she had been insulted by a young fellow on her way to church. This was a boy whom we were supporting. My husband turned him out of the house. There was not a single soul that day who could forgive my husband for that act, not even I. This time Miss Gilby left of her own accord. She shed tears when she came to say goodbye, but my mood would not melt. To slander the poor boy so, and such a fine boy too, who would forget his daily bath and food in his enthusiasm for Swadeshi. My husband escorted Miss Gilby to the railway station in his own carriage. I was sure he was going too far. When exaggerated accounts of the incident gave rise to a public scandal, which found its way to the newspapers, I felt he had been rightly served. I had often become anxious at my husband's doing, but had never before been ashamed. Yet now I had to blush for him. I did not know exactly, nor did I care, what wrong poor Norin might, or might not have done to Miss Gilby, but the idea of sitting in judgment on such a matter at such a time. I should have refused to damn the spirit which prompted young Norin to defy the English woman. I could not but look upon it as a sign of cowardice in my husband that he should fail to understand this simple thing, and so I blushed for him. And yet it was not that my husband refused to support Swadeshi, or was in any way against the cause. Only he had not been able wholeheartedly to accept the spirit of Bande Mataram, the opening words of a song by Bankim Chatterjee, the famous Bengali novelist, which means Hail Mother. I am willing, he said, to serve my country, but my worship I reserve for right, which is far greater than my country. To worship my country as a god is to bring a curse upon it. End of chapter 1